Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono. And today I am joined by someone who chronicles the Uruguayan football culture and history for the account Uruguay Football English. Please welcome to the show, Celeste supporter, Alvaro Perez. Welcome, Alvaro. Sal, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you. Uh, I'm really excited to dive into this beautiful country who I only know through from afar and through the phenomenal players that they've had over the years. And it's your heritage. It's where you're from. And I can't think of a better person to take me and the listeners on this journey. But before we get into that, you're coming to us from Toronto, Canada, yes. a city that is generally known for its large population of obviously native Canadians, but also has heavy Italian influence, heavy French communities. Um, South American communities is not really what Toronto is known for. So what's it like for someone like yourself watching this game and watching the teams that you love from Uruguay from afar in a city that is not heavily dominated by people that are like you? That's a great question. Um, so yeah, no, no, for the, the, the idea is in Toronto, you know, there's a lot of little pockets, a lot of communities. The South Americans, you'll occasionally find some of them downtown, but they're mostly kind of situated in the north of the city or the outskirts, maybe in some, uh, you know, little smaller cities outside Toronto that kind of count as a greater Toronto area. But yeah, the idea, I mean, experiencing soccer here um, from like an immigrant perspective, especially not only following something that is niche like South American football, but then kind of even more niche, which is Uruguay, you know, which is like kind of niche within niche. So yeah, no, the experience is very, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a little private in a sense, because you know, very few people are following the team you're following. But the good thing is that in a way, everyone kind of, you know, everyone who's involved in the world football community kind of knows about each other. So whenever I talk to like an Italian fan or a Colombian fan, Argentinian fan, it's like we can kind of relate to it, you know, because our players are kind of playing the same clubs in Europe. So there is a little bit of that, um, and, you know, there, there's a, a definitely a big sense of connection that I think soccer, football uh, brings towards immigrants. And like I said, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little isolating, um, but in a sense, once you find each other, you know, thankfully the internet came around because that, you know, back in the 90s, I mean, I remember at one point I was following a game in text. Like there was literally people on a message board and my dad was pressing reload on a 28K computer. So we're talking internet. So we're talking like three minutes per reload. We once followed the shootout between Uruguay and France for the quarterfinal of the 1997 under 20 World Cup. And it was literally like reload four oh minutes God. later. Oh God, was that a save? It was ridiculous. There was like no way to watch anything. So, you know, thankfully um, with everything that came around, it made a massive difference. You know, um, uh, well, the thing is, you know, funny, ironically in a way, more stuff is, is available, but people are watching it more at home. Funny enough, in the mid 2000s, people used to go to pubs and actually you meet like the whole soccer community in pubs for the qualifiers. So in a way, funny enough, when it was harder, I think the community was more vibrant. Like you could meet people and, and go and celebrate and, you know, uh, poke fun etc you do banter so now it's i think um you know soccer for me instead of going to these massively packed pubs it's basically me watching with my father now uh, or close family you know what i mean or by myself even so yeah it's a uh, funny enough easier to get but more isolating i think it's become kind of kind of ironic in that sense i'd say wow that's actually an interesting perspective for sure and a good way to 
kind of bring all this up because I mean, so much is done on social media now. I mean, that's how I found out about you. But like to actually go and do like what we're doing now is almost a stretch, like to make that human connection. It's sort of like, I'll follow the account and I don't really need to interact with them, but I'm following them. So therefore I'm making a little effort, but therefore that doesn't mean I need to talk and associate with them. It is interesting though, for sure. Um, no, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, it's kind of interesting in a sense. We're getting like like more news than ever. You know, I guess in a way, I mean, because you could choose to speak to the person, and in a way, the way the same way you contacted me to ask a few questions. But yeah, I can see that in a way. It's sort of like there is a little bit of a distance still. You know, you have the feed come in. Um, Twitter, in a way, is kind of like at this point, just reading a newspaper that's translated for you. I guess if you're following the South American accounts in that sense. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's you know, it is it is interesting. Obviously, we've seen. You know, it's mad is ballooned at this point the interest you see accounts now i mean brazilian football i think their account has like 150,000 um the argentinian ones easily 40,000 per account like effortlessly so yeah you know it's, it's cool i mean i love the fact that you know you, you get to speak to people from all over the world now lo and behold turns out a lot of people are into south american soccer so that's a great thing and yeah, like i said it's opened a lot of um, just a lot of opportunities just to speak with people just talk and share <laughs> that's the great thing about this for sure. I mean, it, it's show and tell, and it's also your memories too. And what kind of drove you in 2013 to create your Twitter account, Uruguay Football English. And then in 2020, in lockdown, you created your fantastic YouTube channel to discuss the history, culture, and news of the national team. So what had compelled you to do this and use the internet as a tool and use social media as a tool for basically being a pundit for a national team translating it into English and having trying to find an audience when clearly there isn't one or there is an audience, but it's finding it and you want to be the catalyst for that. Well, you know, I used to do that before Twitter actually came around. So Twitter, Twitter was kind of like the vehicle that allowed me to spread it in a more, let's just say in a more convenient way, um, you know, and obviously to more people. So before I used to maybe write a blog or I go to off a message boards and maybe like 10 people would read it. If I was lucky, to be honest, maybe they were kind of randomly scrolling by, but Twitter actually gave me the opportunity. And, you know, I, I, I noticed pretty quickly that there was an audience for it. Um, we have a lot of, like a lot of people that message me. They're from, I'm not like shocking. I mean, Japan and they're massive Uruguay fans, like lifelong, but they have incredible stories. Like they would watch um, the 1982, for example, uh, Intercontinental Cup final, which was played in Tokyo from, you know, the eighties and nineties until the two thousands. So, you know, they would see the Uruguayan club and fall in love with them. And then because of the internet, so they never thought that they could actually follow it closely. So therefore that's just one example. So, you know, <laughs> funny enough, you know, the, the fact that you said like, what compels you so i almost feel like um, i'm like a door-to-door salesman in a sense because you know i want people to like to hear the word in a sense so i'm very passionate about you know spreading uruguay soccer history because i think it's worth spreading because i think it's incredible for me it's as if um you know it's as if imagine you have a baseball culture and the boston red sox happen to have a different language and no one's covering them or in hockey the montreal canadians or something you know i'm just saying uruguay has this insane history and it, like you know i know outside of Europe, you know, you have um, outside of South America, usually here, Argentina, Brazil, they are the economic powers. But in South America, it's the big three, always for like 120 years, always. Right. You, yeah. you start Argentina, Brazil, you never, they never forget Uruguay. Like even Colombian media, they're like the big three. It's just established. So I'm like, the fact that it's like, how did that happen? How do you have like 200 million 
45 million, 3 million, and they're on par. How? So I really wanted to spread that because you know, the thing is, and not to, not to talk down about Canadian sports culture, but I was enamored when I went to Uruguay, like when I had conscious, like when I actually could remember what it was like blown away. And I'd never seen a, a football or, or sporting culture like it, even within South America and even the South wow. America, some of the things the Colombians have told me, Ecuadorians, like, it's like, you know, the things that Uruguay does to maintain itself is surreal. And, you know, I can tell you a few things, but like, I think even statistically, it's how everyone in the country is legitimately mobilized for football is something I've never heard of ever. Like here in Canada, the hockey fans are like, oh, Bob's a hockey fan. Cool. Good for him. Here it's like, even the guy who's not into it knows everything about soccer, <laughs> even women, everything. And it's, in, it is really amazing. And like I said, I think it's more than just a sports phenomenon. Like it's just some of the stuff they've accomplished is absolutely like mind-boggling and i i just felt like in general like wow how is this not being known right like you know right. you're talking about soccer, football the biggest thing in the world and you have this incredible story of this team that for a hundred years has basically been rocky but you know yeah. like doing it over and over and over and over generation after generation with inferior players often too with against teams they've been and then you kind of get to wonder i mean to be honest, like I said, it's like the moment you visit the country and see the competitive level, which, like I said, is like I, not even 1% in Canada to what I've seen there. And oh. that's what it is. I think it's the, the contrast that I noticed blew me away so much that I've become just dedicated since I, it's not even like a choice for me anymore. It's absolutely just, I need to get this out because like I said, I think it's, it's really incredible. You know, the, 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 the games that they featured and, you know, the other day I put a photo of uh, 105,000 people, you know, third place match 1970 world cup uruguay germany it's like 50 60 for target it's like an epic photo the handshake and i'm like they were there third place match Aztec stadium and i'm just saying you know not, not to you know say like if a team does not reach that they're not worth like you know not worth the attention of anyone but i'm just saying that is pretty incredible stuff when you hear colombia has not even come close for the last maybe 2014 they could win the semis but i'm just saying like for a hundred years and you know i'm just saying it's amazing and it keeps being amazing and like I said, I, I just really, really, really want to, you know, spread the word basically wow. show people really what this is about and why it is that they keep doing this. Right. And yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and the thing for me is that like, when I, obviously we talked about the big three, right. But hmm. there's still an underrated quality to Uruguay and especially outside of South American borders because of the fact that, when you think about South American football, immediately it's vintage images of Maradona and Pelé, yeah. but you also have, you know, scenes from Maracana and you know that that's amazing and scenes from Sao Paulo and you know the stadium there is amazing and that's just in Brazil. Then you yeah. go to Argentina and you have Boca River and you know that that's crazy and you have all those teams just within Buenos Aires and they're all knives out with each other. So you know <laughs> that that's happening there. But then across, just, just, a couple hours north, not even that far, just across the river right there is Montevideo. And you don't hear about what those fans are like. Like I've, the only South American country I've traveled to thus far has been Colombia. My wife and I went to Cartagena right uh, year before the pandemic hit. Amazing. Had such a phenomenal time. It's actually funny now seeing all the footballers spending their holiday there. Like Iker Casillas was there this summer. Kevin De Bruyne is also vacationing there now, which the Cartagena sun in July in, is probably going to melt poor Kevin De Bruyne. So, you know, I hope he brought the sunscreen. But that being said, everywhere I went, I don't speak 
Colombian Spanish at all. Like, uh, it's terrible. You know, I would, I can understand because uh, I speak Italian, but I couldn't communicate back. But I could speak about players, you know, and everybody, as you said, like everybody in that city knew everything there was about Italian soccer because Duvan Zapata was playing at Atalanta. Uh, yeah. which is a small team that's not a big team and at the time Atalanta was on the come up mm. and uh his cousin had played for AC Milan as a defender Christian Zapata so that was um, everybody knew about that so I was wildly blown away by how much everybody knew and my wife would translate she speaks Spanish and she, and she has no idea what, what you know that was a whole foreign language for her but I could hear it and understand it and we were able to chat and it became a almost like it unlocked a Rosetta Stone. And that's how I've been able to communicate. But you never, ever, ever hear, and you see, and again, you see the images of like, we talked about Peru earlier, like the Peruvian fans and, um, and Chilean fans and what the game is like for that. But again, Uruguay, so important, so big in terms of awards. And yet I don't know what those fans are like. And it's kind of like, to me, that's the foreign thing to me is that I don't ever see images of what goes on in that country outside of your account. Yeah, you know, it is, um, you know, in a, in a way, actually, one of the things that Uruguay loves is actually being um, under noticed in a sense, like they oh, actually wow. love that. So it's like they, they have this, um, it's almost like they, through historically, Uruguay's mostly done well when they come out of nowhere or showed up with like, I mean, the 1987 team was like an absolute disaster. They, they were like almost having a brawl with each other. No one knew each other. Four days later, they come back with a couple of America. I was like, uh-huh. And they beat Argentina's full 86 team in Buenos Aires to eliminate them in the semifinal. And it's like, no one could believe it. But the thing is, had they come in as absolute favorites, I don't know, historically, they don't, I don't know what it is. It's maybe, it's obviously psychological. It has to be because, I don't know. But anyways, but the, I don't know, you know, it, I guess this has to mostly do with, um, I'm guessing television rights, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So just to give you a quick example, uh, Nacional Peñarol, which is the Derby of Uruguay, they actually showed that live all over South America, like on free TV as like an integral derby. But outside, like this would be like, you know, just to give you a, an example of subjectivity. And so I had, um, we used to have like a Brazilian students stay at my family's house years ago, just, you know, homestay or whatever. And I, you know, I was in, I was into European football for a bit. And one day I just mentioned Celtic and Rangers. He was like, what's that? I'm like, are you kidding? Like, do right. you know that in Scotland, Celtic and Rangers are like Real Madrid, then Celtic, pretty much the biggest clubs in the world. Like never heard of this. You don't know Celtic and Rangers, meh. No one in Brazil. It's like I don't think anyone in Brazil has ever even heard of these teams. And it was like, dude, like the, the, a Scotsman would faint. Are you are you serious? And he was he swore to me. And he's not only do I not know most Brazilians have never heard of those two clubs. And I'm like, you know, at least in UK, I would say, or in Europe, like they're promoted as yeah. massive cultural institutions, not just football clubs. Like they're massive. A Brazilian told me he's never heard of them. Never heard of. Not even like, oh yeah, they're okay. No, I don't know what that is. What do you? What words are you saying to me? He was legit be baffled so i'm just saying like i think it depends really on where right. you know for example in spain they show a lot of your like because spain has a different history see in 19 this is really fascinating but in 1966 Peñarol beats real madrid in two legs to win the club world title and i can't believe that since then almost any spaniard i meet that's in his 50s like 1966 like immediately they just know and Peñarol is like one of the top three four southern clubs that every spanish one person knows and i'm like just because of that game. It's like, yep, just because of that game. Like, that's insane. So like I said, there's different, you know, I, I think 
it has to do with TV rights, different cultures. I'm a little bit surprised with Italy though, because you know Uruguayan football has such historical strong ties. Yeah. I mean, considering um, Pedro Petrone, who went to Fiorentina in 1931 after the Wonder World Cup, he became Capo Cagnonieri, like, I think once or twice. And he yeah. was like an old man. He was like 30. So I'm just saying, like, there's even from the early days when Argentinians, you know, I'm sure you know, 34 and 38, a few That's Argentinians cool. played on the national team. Played, also, I think they played even the 1930 World Cup final for Argentina, funny enough. But yeah, you know, since then, Uruguayans and Argentinians were going in Italy so early and kind of established, you know, Scafino in the 50s, Gigi for Roma in the 50s. You have Scafino for Milano obviously unforgettable time um so yeah I mean, i'm just i don't know um i would have assumed that in italy they would know more but like i said i guess it depends on every era whether they start having the rights for these games or not in a sense and it seems at this moment um there isn't maybe much of a market outside of south america in that sense so i, I could just imagine that being one of the reasons because honestly I don't, I don't know i don't know any europeans who would be like oh yeah universal de chile versus colo colo massive derby like you know the chilean derby really so i don't know <laughs> I'm just saying, i just i think it depends Depends. Like most days, Boca River. I'd honestly be surprised if you ask um, European, like anyone, and be like, "Do you know Newell's Rosario Central?" That's like the second biggest derby in Argentina. No, I mean, I'm just wondering. So I don't know. I think it's subjective, but um, maybe on a case by case basis. Like that's the way I'm explaining in that sense. You're right about the TV thing, and I would think that in the age of streaming, where everything is all on demand and all access, there would be more of that. And I think that's, I think you know, that's what it is for me. And I'm embarrassed to say that, like, I couldn't even name a Uruguayan club. Yeah, you know, and that's, it kind of bothers me, man. Like, you know, and, and that's, and that's on me, of course. But it's also like, it's that's where I'm getting at. Where it's at least it goes back to that that Celtic Rangers uh, comparison that you had talked about. Like, yeah, that's a huge thing, of course. But I also wonder if it's also, and I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure it does, but race plays a factor and, and you know, Anglo-Saxon stuff plays a factor into it because I, I would think, I was like you in that position. I would be like you in that position where I would think the whole world knows about Celtic Rangers, especially in the 80s, 90s, given the religious implications on both sides mm -hmm. and the troubles that were going on there. So it's sort of like to hear someone not know about it. Yeah. It's both incredible. bewildering and kind of beautiful at the same <laughs> time. Like, whoa, you know, there was a point in the world, there's a point in time in the world where like we didn't know everything and that was okay too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, you know, I don't know. It, it is, I know, yeah, I know. I, I think what you're saying, you know, for example, you know, like a Brazilian fan might know of a club that a European club has never heard of. And maybe the average fan knows of these clubs more. They can probably mm -hmm. name, give you a random Argentinian team, Vélez Arsfield, because Diego Godin was uh, transferred there this morning, yeah. signed everything. And, it, and it's like, you know, I wonder, and they're massive in South America, but they are a big team. I mean, they, they won one club world title in 94, but even with that, like they're considered a very, very big team. And I don't know if anyone knows them outside of South America, to be honest, unless right. you talk to the Vélez Arsfield, maybe the English supporter from England, which could exist. I'm sure, I'm sure I think there is actually, but uh, I don't know. It's, it is, you know, I don't know. It's very interesting. Sometimes I do wonder if it has to do with competition. So for example, why bring in, you know, more leagues from around the world when the zone is already trying to sell just the premier league, just the J league, just the, the right. J league. That's weird. I don't know. The J league in Japan, they, yeah. they recently had like a two year zone contract and then they, they disappear from the face of the earth. There's like no J league anywhere. So it's yeah, really that is like, true. Right what is going on? I don't know. And it's, so it's, it's a little bit all over the place. So it's a coverage. <laughs> My childhood hero was like an ambassador for uh, the J league. When it first started, Salvatore Scalacci went to, Scalacci. yeah. 
I mean, no year away for Gascalachi, the 1990 goal from like half with like a nutmeg and he blows it over Fernando Alves, an incredible goal. No, his form in that World Cup is just amazing. Amazing. Incredible. He became the best striker in the world basically overnight. It was amazing. Right, exactly. It was amazing. It reminded me almost of uh, when, you know, 82, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, the famous uh, Italian who came back from, he was banned. You know, oh, Paolo Rossi. Paolo Rossi, exactly. Yeah. Although, you know, they say he he really blew up like in the second round, obviously, because yeah. John apparently didn't, didn't do well. And then the biggest matches, but still against Brazil, of course, 82. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's um, you know, really, I don't know, it's kind of interesting comparison in a sense. But yeah, I remember, um, remember that player pretty well in that sense too. Yeah. And it was just, you know, so like I've always had like a focal point of like I would keep an eye on the team that he played for and that league for a little bit. But yeah, you're right. I, you know, I would, yeah, I don't know. Maybe when Elon Musk takes over Twitter for $8 billion, he'll just stream everything. That's, that's my hope. That would be the dream. Oh, they, they, are, you know, they are starting in a sense, like I said, but I think it just needs major, like everybody's actually streaming out for the first time. They have their official account and everything. And you pay like, five, like 50 pesos and you can watch the national team. The thing is, you know, the, it has to be picked up by bigger, you know, I think streaming services, et cetera, et cetera. But like I said, there's just so much competition, right? And Uruguay's essentially become a farmer's league. So basically, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's common sense. Knowing the realities of world football, they knew that they had to sell, sell, sell. So players right. didn't want us there. Often, although, you know, it's, it's still very passionate and everything, but it's just, you know, the, the main players that you follow generally go to Europe and then you follow them in Europe or, or mm. wherever they go. It could be the MLS as well, with all respect. There's a lot of, you know, yes, that's true. South America playing in the MLS as well, right? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's um, it's very interesting why, um, you know, I don't know, why certain leagues are being shown more than others. Um, and, yeah, I, I guess in, in a sense, like what we're discussing is that it seems like different regions around the world are kind of getting, there's like this massive race for streaming now and contracts. And it's almost like a roulette now, you know, different countries getting different kinds of leagues in general. So, I don't know. I, I know that they, the Uruguayan clubs, I think they have their best chance of getting exposed would be the Copa Libertadores or the Copa Sudamericana right. International Competition. Those, luckily, luckily, those are shown. Um, we have a bunch of streaming services, yeah. even in Canada, that show those competitions. So, luckily, I mean, in that sense, if, if someone's looking, they would find him right there easily in that sense. For sure. For sure. You know, you were born in Uruguay and lived there for a while. What's it like seeing the game from afar and then going from within? I know you I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but like being separated and then returning back and, you know, the yo-yoing back and forth. I know it brings the love and joy to you all often and as you touched on earlier, but is there something that, I don't know, is there, I guess what I'm asking here is that, is there um, an anchor to say the least or what the difference is like watching it from obviously being there, you have the passionate fans and then being away from it, you are the sole passionate fan or whoever is around you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh no, there's a massive, I mean, the th the media, for example, very, very different in terms of football culture, what is allowed, what is considered to be, let's just say, unacceptable, for example, uh, is not the same in terms of standards as it is in North American sports. So give you an example that I remember this one really riled me up because I thought I just witnessed one of the most beautiful moments ever. So 2014 World Cup, and this is Alexis Lalas, I'm sure you know from, uh, I think yeah. it's see the MLS guy, you know, he played in the 90s. He said, yeah, too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so... Um, yeah. 
Yeah, very, very. It was very. I remember my my, my dad mentioned it. Like, oh, you know, I got Lala's in the city. Yeah, but um, basically, it was Uruguay, England, and I don't know if you remember this play, but um, Raheem Sterling accidentally and very accidentally knees a Uruguayan player like in the temple, like knocks him out cold. He gets up, he's stumbling. The doctors are trying to drag him off the field, and he's screaming like, "I'm not leaving! I'm not!" First play after that, he basically tackles Glenn Johnson off the field, and it was incredible. And standing ovation by all the Brazilians. After the game, Alexis Lalas goes and there's brand. He's like, I can't believe children viewed that. That was such a terrible example for the children. Oh my goodness. If I, as a father, I was like, I'm like, excuse me, sir, sir, excuse me. Uh, 300 million people have never won a World Cup, let's just say. And I do think, honestly, I do think that one of the reasons is a, a difference in not just spirit, but also mentality in a sense. Right. And the fact that he was blown away by a player who was for not for money, but literally for the history, he was he was gonna die that game if he had to to beat them was baffling to him. Excuse me, not being paid. What's going on here? That was amazing. But I've heard that many times before. I mentioned a story before in, in different tweets. Uh, there's an, an example in 1962, Uruguay plays the USSR. One of the players from Uruguay, a defender, breaks his leg, literally hanging. He refuses to get subbed off. There was no substitutions for that game. He hops the 90 minutes, basically, on one broken leg. And he was like, for Uruguay, man, the history, man. No, I couldn't. I'm just saying there's, there's, there's this next level that I found when I went there. And I was like, you come back here. I'm not just saying that I've heard it. Like you can, you can, talk. I actually want to say the name because I spoke to a player once outside of Toronto FC's BMO ground. And I literally asked him like, are you playing for Canada? So they're going to pay me? Like they, there's not this scent. Dude, Suarez would play for free for you. They pretty much do. Right. Like they, yeah. Ever Cavani. My God. Like these guys would, they would miss a Champions League final without a doubt, without a question. It's that's like the funniest thing because Champions League is, you know, the biggest thing right. without a question because it means so much. I said, I stay. And that's what I mean. When I saw um, Alexis, Lalas do that rant. I was just like, I can't believe that this is happening. Like, I just witnessed the bravest thing I've ever seen. Like, this guy's like picture on my wall, my wallet, even <laughs> legend. I mean, the balls on this guy. And the guy was like, oh, was, you know, doing the whole mod, watching the pearls. Oh, yeah. Someone think of the children. And I'm thinking, oh, man. The kids have seen way like worse, the man. Sorry? But the kids have seen way worse, but it's also like, that's sportsmanship that's that's the beauty of this you know um it reminds me of the 1994 world cup final italy brazil roberto baggio misses that penalty kick which i've talked about many times on this show and we'll talk about for many points in my life but what everyone fails to mention is that roberto baggio played that entire game with a pulled hamstring amazing i know yeah so it's like in, in California heat in the middle of July. So it's like, well, wait a minute. All right. So he missed the PK, but let's think about the situation that he's, you know, putting himself through. Um, but he, but on the flip side though, is, is that when you watch the last dance, the documentary series on the Chicago bulls, when Michael Jordan talks about how his feet are bleeding or plays the flu game, um, and wins a championship for the, the Bulls or, you know, puts on these like old sneakers the last time he's going to play Madison Square Garden. And they're so tight around his feet that they're actually pools of blood and his sock is red. And that's that's heroism. And, and I love Michael Jordan. I think that's badass. But like that's heroism. And, you know, and, you know, he's a hero for doing that. And it's like, but, you know, that there's a sturdy paycheck. Here's a guy, as you're saying, doing this for free, literally ride or die. Yeah. And I, I don't know, like, 
that's that's even more spectacular. I find crazy, it, but spectacular. Well, because you know it is different because you know in North America, I, I do find football's been very uh, maybe the word is capitalized in a sense. I'll give you an example uh, here just to play soccer in downtown Toronto. I'm paying like 180 bucks for like a tiny field of like 15 beaters by like nothing, and it's like turf, garbage field. And we're talking like, you know, it's very expensive, tiny patch of turf field in the middle of schools for kids to play here. It's like $300, $400 per season. And it's like, you know, the coaching standard is so low. And, you know, you ask them, it's like, can they do this for free? They will laugh in your face. But then you go to South America. And I know in Europe, they have, they do have a lot of volunteer base with football. Um, and I know particularly like, I mean, I'm, this is, it seems small, but coming from North America. So my parents went to Roma last year two oh, years right. ago, and they were saying that there was all these like public parks and yeah. like sports were free subsidized by the government. We were blown away. You know, in Toronto, they will rip your heads off just to play sports here. And it's nothing like that at all. And then you have a Uruguay where you have 65,000 kids per weekend, totally volunteer with coaches who are absolutely committed absolutely, to the biggest, you know, the best training methods, everything. And it's free. And that's the thing. You have all these like thousands of adults every weekend mobilize absolutely free. They're not, not given a cent to do this. And if I were to say that here, they would laugh in your face. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, what? So not only are we not raping you off with the price, but you want to play for free, sir? Oh boy. So anyways, so it, I'm just saying there's like, you know, it's those little moments when you go there and you're like, wow 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 just a little thing like that kind of exactly, exactly. It's, it's just there, there's like a different level of passion it's like this is life for them this is not just like a, an activity or you know whatever it you know whatever it would be if you have like a slight interest in the sport like it's definitely very deep it goes very deep for a lot of the for the people there basically so yeah. like i said they they really go all out and it's basically for free and they just do it out of their own volition like a lot of effort, a lot of organization for free. You know, I, I, I guess, you know, we all got to start tweeting at Drake and be like, yo, dude, you've got a ton of money. You love Toronto so much. Buy some fields, buddy. Yeah. It's crazy. Because yeah. you know, what's funny is, is that after he retired professionally, Scalacci went back to Palermo and opened up a soccer academy. And it is, if it's not free, it's very inexpensive. And it's in the city of Palermo. But a few years ago, 2018, 2019, he opened it up to refugees. Oh, and obviously that was free for the refugees. So it was this amazing thing that just given back, like, I don't need to do this. Like, I don't need to make, this is not a profit thing. I want to create the next generation of Italian player. I love that. I love that. Cause you say it's not for profit while here. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's like, they, they don't even fake it. They're like, yeah, man, whatever. <laughs> it's, the same in, it's the same in the States. Like I, I'm not going to say North America because obviously in Mexico, they're doing what they're doing in South America and in Europe where it's, hey, there's a field, you play, have field, play ball. Whereas our two countries are sort of just like, well, let's let's profit from this. And it's and it and it kind of it ruins it so much. I think so as well. I. Yeah, because, you know, it, it seems that at least for us, you know, because, you know, we, we, we do a lot. I, I got to do a lot of stuff. I love this stuff. I can do it. I can literally, I would pay on my own and go and, be in, you know, whatever, just to go and be part of it. Go and watch a game. It doesn't matter. But, yeah, you know, it's the idea that, you know, we have to make money off this. You know, this has to be done for profit or else it's pointless. And I, I never, for me, it goes against the spirit of football that I was raised with. So that's why it's so just like, you know, so different. Almost polar opposites almost in terms of like the philosophy I find, you know, in that sense, uh, particularly because, like I said, like, and like you said too, like, it's just, you know, we're emotionally invested in a different kind of 
uh, culture with different values and different, um, you know, just a different way of doing things. So unfortunately, yeah, it's it's the way it is. Um, but like I said, luckily, well, not luckily for, for North, although, you know, North America, they are producing good players, obviously. Canada, the yeah, of course, US, yeah. Good teams. But, um, you know, I don't know. It's just, um, I, I just really wonder, you know, uh, there's a player. I don't want to. I don't want to speak for the player out of turn. Um, but a Canadian player plays for Vancouver. Uh, he's a striker for, for Team Canada, and they actually asked him. There was like an interview recently about that, and I don't want to go too much into it. But he basically said the same thing because he played in Uruguay. Actually, mm-hmm. funny enough, though he's Argentinian, played in Uruguay, Uruguayan league for a bit, and he was just talking about the yeah the difference uh, in general. I would recommend that interview. I don't want to talk about like talk about it because I think he has sure. controversial things, specifically saying you know in, just interview differences. I think he mentioned in that sense, but I think he noted is this as well and i i wonder if the players um if they think the same thing when they come here even they come to the mls like if they look around and they see the you know they see that the, the, the for-profit football business as it's exploding you know suddenly i go watch you know you, have, you know those friendlies that they come i'm sure in New York. Yeah, yeah yeah here in toronto when they come once in a while they're, they're they rip your heads off with the prices. Oh. it's like 200 300 dollars to see a player jog for 20, 30 minutes and got subbed off, basically. So, uh, you know, it's that aspect. Like, we were even thinking, wow, will 2026 be like this? Can FIFA, like, to, to, to even expect, like, oh, can FIFA be the moral uh, source and actually right. make, like, li- li- good prices? Can FIFA, like, when you're, you know, expecting that to happen. So, it's, we're worried, yeah, that they're going to chart like, an insane amount. Well, that's what's funny is, is that I, when the schedule, not schedule, when the stadiums were announced as to win the 2026 World Cup, was going to happen i tweeted out the same exact thing that you just said is that this is awesome but when the random friendlies come they're like two three hundred bucks a pop here in new york city to sit in like i don't know garbage rows so far away from the field to see like i don't know the madrid b team play the i don't know celtic b team i'm just randomly putting out two teams but it's not the starters or if it is the starters they're all right 10 minutes yeah. I don't want you getting hurt. You just got to, you know, get some calisthenics. And yeah. what's that World Cup going to be like? On the first episode of this podcast, I had a friend of mine who performed at the World Cup final with Whitney Houston uh, during the halftime show and the pre-show. Oh, 94. Yes, in 94. And she talked about, and she's from California, and she talked about how there was there was interest, but there wasn't a lot of interest in LA that they act, FIFA actually did a really cool thing and went to local communities and w- local soccer communities and gave tickets to children and their teams and said, invited all these local teams to say, hey, c- come watch a World Cup final. And that World Cup final is at the time, the two biggest and best teams in the world. So if I'm a 10 year old kid, in 1994, which I was in Long Island, but not in California, and I get a ticket to that World Cup, your life has changed at that point. You're either like, I want to do this or I don't know, this is cool, but let's see how, is it a phase? But most of the time that's going to influence someone. Whereas now, I don't know. I remember when Brazil hosted the, uh, the world cup in 2014. And we talked about that earlier. And I remember the final being just all celebrities like Ashton Kutcher, who doesn't watch soccer. He's the, and it's like, dude, I get it. You want to say that you're there and you love sports, but I don't know. That ticket should belong to like some kid from the barrio. Like that, that's like not, that's where I get afraid of where it becomes now the Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. And I know I'm on my like, I'm pontificating and I'm preaching to the choir and nothing's going to change. But it's like, 
I think it's relevant what you're saying. Because, you know, look at the, um, I, a lot of people compared the uh, opening ceremony of the last Champions League final to a Super Bowl. You know, they had, God, I forget her name. And she's like a massive. Really? Was it? No, it wasn't Dua Lipa. I, no, it, was, it wasn't Dua Lipa. Um, she's very famous. I, it, you know, it just slipped in my mind right now. There's another like huge but, pop star that like. Oh, she's huge. But the idea was that apparently the Liverpool fans and the Madrid fans like sang her off. Like it, it was like, she actually tweeted like furious, like no one pay attention to me. And people were apparently like, this is not the Super Bowl. Like don't make this like the Super Bowl, please. You know? So it, it was very interesting that they outwardly rejected that. Um, I found like the fans themselves. Yeah. It was just, a, just an interesting, because it kind of shows, you know, there's a little bit of resistance, right, to the, uh, maybe the globalization of the game to make it so much like an event, like, like the Super Bowl in that sense. So, you know, very, yeah, no, it's very, um, very, yeah, and I definitely see what you mean in that sense. Yeah, it's like, I guess, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things, you know, with FIFA and the spirit of the game in a sense, you know, it's as long as, you know, <laughs> here's the thing. I know they like to make money in North America, but they definitely like to make money in some capacity <laughs> over there too. So they're going to take those opportunities to, um, you know, show celebrities. I'm sure I, I, I see it as almost inevitable. It's unfortunate for sure. And I believe me as a purist, I absolutely, I love what you said that, by the way, I wish we could have seen thousands of the youth players from clubs all over Paris, from France, traveling, you know, being at the game with the Madrid supporters, with the Liverpool supporters, it would have been amazing, you know, in that sense, but I don't know, we, we got what we got, which was, you know, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to keep talking though, because we're about world cup, especially in a little later on, because, um, Argentina is going to do a COVID or try and do a COVID with Uruguay. That's the room. So we're going to touch on that in a little bit. I want to go back to the Uruguay national team for a hot sec. For sure. So Celeste, the nickname for the Uruguay national team, they've got such a rich history that, again, goes like the country itself, underappreciated, under the radar. Four-time FIFA world champions, including two World Cups. It is given a bevy of stars over the years, many of which we've named Ralph before, but in recent years, we've seen Edison Cavani, Diego Forlan, Luis Suarez, Diego Gardin, and yet are still considered underdogs. Yeah. They but, like that. And you, and you like that, which is, I don't know, like maybe it's because like I'm born in America and Italians like to do everything loud too. And Americans like to do everything big that I, I don't understand what that concept is like, but you know, you can argue that, you know, when, when a country like Uruguay produces such phenomenal players, like we discussed, and to make noise on the international front, like what is it about them that they haven't lifted as many international trophies over the years? Well, I would that's that is a very interesting question. Oh my god, I can attack that from a few perspectives. I mentioned, I remember, you know, even before when we were talking, that I thought that was, I just, I find it subjective because if you look at other nations, for example, Colombia has only won one Cup of America. I think they've been in the final, maybe, I don't know. Actually, I don't even know if they've been to a final since then. No, 75, they did. Never mind. Ecuador, zero. Peru, 100 years, two Cup of Americas. Paraguay, two. So we're saying, like, you know, it's just, you get to see that. The titles end up mostly with Argentina and Brazil. It's just because they're incredible. <laughs> it's like you, you really see it once you're on the pitch. You're like, wow, they're like 10 times better than us in every capacity. Wow. So to beat them is going to be tricky. Um, but the thing is, you know, it, it, it's very hard for Uruguay to win titles in that regard. Um, so I don't know. One thing I think, I guess you could say, if you were to look at the modern history of the Copa America, which is considered 1975 onwards, that, that's when it was actually redubbed as okay. Copa America, which included all of South America for the first time. 
So the title count is actually insanely tight. It's like Brazil six, Uruguay four, Argentina four and three or three or something. It's like really, even recently. So it's like, you know, sometimes I say, it's like, well, what else can Uruguay do? I mean, it's, it's hard. Like for Uruguay to even go to a final, it's, you know, the thing is, the, it, it kind of ties back to the whole underdog thing that they like. Um, Uruguay kind of, you know, I know Italy has the Catenaccio historically, and it was developed in the 30s like, for a long time ago, right? So historically, there is a sort of that, you know, spirit associated with Italian football. I find Uruguay has it as well. The players grow up. You know, actually, there's a one thing I wanted to mention, and this is something I have noticed with, with many cultures. A lot of teams don't view playing badly as a sign of we're about to reach glory, but Uruguay has experienced that pretty much countless times. So Uruguay could be losing 2-0, and the players are like, yeah, we're about to win 3-2. Like, they act as if it's not even close to being over. Germany has that, but I've actually talked to a few people, like, the only things that have that spirit, like, Germany... Argentina, and I would say historically, to be honest, Italy, except for the recent, and I think the last thing was just such a, it was such a tragedy because Italy was basically fell into the hole of playing a one-off playoff <laughs> where like literally they had like an incredible last four years, like, incredible. They won the Euro, you know, they didn't do badly in the qualifiers, you know, they just didn't beat Switzerland in that last game. And then it all settled in one match. And I'm like, Every, anyone, maybe Argentina could have lost it for Pete's sake. So I'm just saying. Oh, I get I, it. You know, there's a whole, I can go on for ages about it, but it is bizarre poetic justice that it's played in Palermo. Yes. Oh, played, no, at, played at like the family stadium, if you will. Uh, you know, being half Palamadan. Didn't the guy, the, guy, the, the, guy the guy who scored from North Macedonia played for Palermo. Oh, yeah. I think he takes a shot. You know the shot he does? They even said, like, he takes that shot every game. Like, he actually does that, that play, like, constantly. It just works. That it just works. It works for the biggest game. You know? And but that's the thing is that, and but going off of what you're saying, and not for me to go on to a rant, and I promise the listener I'm not going on a rant here, but it's tying into what you're saying is, is that the teams that Italy is expected to beat, they don't. And the teams that they're not supposed to beat, they do. And Catenaccio was the defensive, the chain, that whole legacy that has been created that Roberto Mancini unleashed. He snapped that. You could also argue that Antonio Conte, when he took over for that brief spell for the Azzurri, also began to change the mentality a little bit of like, no, attack. Attack to the point that you're so exhausted. That was the Euro prior, yeah. Yeah, that your legs are going to fall off and you have no more sweat left in your body. Right. Mancini did that on a more gentlemanly fashion. But the idea is, is that, but the idea was always still there. And historically, it's so Italian to like be up a game, one nothing, and then just, okay, that's it. We're yeah. over. That's it. We're doing it. Like, and then in the 89th minute rolls around and it's like, now it's a draw. And you, you idiots didn't do it. Here's a question. Do you like that? Because that's the thing. Do Italians appreciate that about that? We're just so used to it that we're not, we're not a team that kills off teams. We're not Germany that like goes right. in oh. like, oh. and then just drives down. And the, the, before you know it, the game is 7-1. Oh, um, and they still want to score. That, oh, yeah, absolutely. Whereas like we're just sort of we're just used to it. It's sort of like the way where if I'm a three Lions fan, if you're a three Lions fan of England and you're so, and you go like, well, we just drew. We're used to it. And it went to PKs and we lost. We're used to it. As an Azzurri supporter, I just want to I, I don't I don't love high scoring games. They mm. don't have to be that way. It's not that to me is an American concept. Like hockey, yeah. Yeah, or like basketball. Or, mm -hmm. you know, blowouts are fun, don't get me wrong, once in a while. But I wouldn't want that all the time. 
if like Italy is playing, if like that Germany Brazil game, right? Like that Germany Brazil World Cup game where like Germany blew out uh, Brazil seven yeah. one in Monaco, then like yard, right, that's a statement. Like make a statement. Yeah. Oh, no, no. That was like a historic statement. Absolutely. Yeah. I was like, whoa, where were you? We're going to win that And they do. Yeah. And then they go on to win the cup. So it's sort of like, okay, if you're doing it against a hardcore team like that, then okay. But if you're doing it against like, I don't know, yeah, Georgia or North Macedonia, then it's just okay. Like that's enough. Yeah. But I'm not, we're not used to that. Two goals is a lot. Three goal, three goals is like holy cow. Games. I love like, you know, one of the best games I've ever seen. And I know it was U- Italy, USA, 2006. I saw it in Germany. Yeah, oh, yeah, the draw it was like yeah. incredible. The red, but the, it was just one one, if I'm not mistaken. Back and forth, offside goals. Like, it was just, it was like legitimately a masterpiece. I thought like 10 out of 10. It was every minute something incredible was happening. The Rossi with his elbow. I mean, it was just like, wow. What a game. What a game. Yeah. And it was just 1-1. And, you know, you explained to someone, I guess, someone else. But I think that game was like, wow, that's football. I love that game. 1-1 with Italy scoring for the U.S. It was an own goal. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When U.S. ties it, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so you're right. So yeah, it's and that's it. But the thing is, you know, it's funny. Okay, so you're so you're saying it's almost as if Italy is more used to that. But I do know, you know, Italy has a population of Italy is what sixty million. Would I be mistaken? Yeah, it's it's dwindled for sure, and it continues so, to dwindle because so many people leave now. So fifty-ish would that be fair? Like fifty? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, six. So the thing is, you know, I think Uruguay adds to their own mythology with, uh, you know, the three million aspect. So the thing is, you have to see they wake up and they look left. It's like two hundred million. Look right, it's like Brazil, Argentina, forty-five million, and it's like massive historical superpowers of football. And the thing is, you know, Uruguay even considers beating Peru like huge because the reality is, these every country in South America has like ten times the infrastructure and like the player base, even the number of players to choose from is like it's incomparable. So the thing is, you know, one of the things, and I, I know they do this in a lot of football countries, like you know, real traditional football nations. The kids in Uruguay are raised with mythologies, like the bedtime stories are not, you know, snow white or whatever oh. oh no i was i literally i think i, I heard like 50 anecdotes going like i was like age four age five my dad would tell me 1970 quarterfinal against the ussr your way scores in the last second you know like literally and every child is basically tucked in with these mythologies and the biggest wins the ones that feel the best are you're like playing awful and somehow it's called smash and grab when they do it in, in england that's what they call it but there's this feeling and that's when they really scream why no wow like they're just on their knees like we we did it in some way i don't even know how we survived that that's why the ghana game it was like right on top of being a masterpiece that ending was the most so uruguay i mean my my friend at the time she's peruvian she called me, it's like that was the most uruguay ending i've ever seen and it felt um it felt better than ever because i would have funny enough i would have rather that than winning three nil but i say that now <laughs> because before no before that shootout my my hair was already turning more gray than it is now already no it was like i i was hyperventilating that match it was insane but just to say so yeah no there is a lot of um you know and they they, they just love it i don't know you know there was a derby once about maybe a decade ago national Peñarol, and what happened was Peñarol was winning one nil enough you know alvaro recoba you know he mm-hmm. really yeah and I think Berushka, if I'm not mistaken. And he um he is actually like what 38 years old, scores like a 40-meter free kick in the 96th minute to, to turn the game around. But the tying goal was hilarious. Like all the players crashed on the line, and a national player handballs it in the net. 
And their fans were like, that was even more epic. Like they were, they loved it. But my Colombian friend was like, oh, it was, it was, you know, he was like, oh, the game was ruined. I'm like, are you kidding? How much more epic is it on your knees with your hand to win a derby? So I'm just saying there's like a lot of mythology of struggling, pulling it through, grinding, and then pulling up a miraculous win, especially to win a title. Forget it. Like in, in terms of feelings of emotion, emotional gratification, it is like, there's nothing like it. So whenever Uruguay goes down, legitimately, the players are like, I don't know, they, they just, they kind of grow up with, yeah, Uruguay plays awful, but somehow they can pull it off. Well, I do notice that, and I, I've actually said this, and I don't know, I don't know, maybe some Colombians, Peruvians may not agree. I've spoken to a few, I, the ones who I've spoken to at least, gave me at least the benefit of the doubt, and they, they were nice to me and agree with me. But they were saying, yeah, like, if, if Colombia goes one nil down, it's like they just give up. And you see it, the players are just like, oh, we're getting outplayed. I guess it's not Colombia's day. Well, the year ago, will be like, wait, 1950, 1954, 1958. Yeah, they won while getting destroyed, dominated. Maybe around Madrid in 66, they had total possession. So they just have all of this history, which is always alive in the mind of a Uruguayan. Same as Argentina, to be fair. Same as Brazil, same as Germany as well. But history is always very alive. And they use that as inspiration, which is, I find kind of another thing that's amazing that Luis Suarez is that. right now thinking of 1950, inspired by 1950 before he even leaves for the game. It's like legitimately important. It's like kids today have the comic book movies. You know, our generation had comic books, you know, and superheroes. And the kids today have got the comic book movies. I hope they're reading the books too. They're also fun. But it's like, and they're using like, you know, whatever, Thor and Iron Man is like inspiration to do like extraordinary things and Spider-Man. Like that is amazing. That on that, that, that the bedtime stories that y'all heard just gets triggered. And like, that's, that's the inspiration. They would even say it back then, you actually have a Jose Nassasi, sorry, um, Abdul Varela, and in 1950s being interviewed, and he's literally going, like, we all we think about is, are we going to let the guys from 1930 down? Are we going to like let the 1924-28 generation, like, we grew up with these guys as uber legends who basically put Uruguay on the map and did miracles, like, you know, you know, for all that they did. So they were even back then thinking that, and then again, 54, like, it just, you know, it kind of adds and adds and adds, and like I said, it's it's uh, it's very emotional, I find, and, and difficult to even categorize uh, logically because of the fact that, I, like I said, it's just so, you know, ingrained with your grandparents. And, you know, like, you know I, I guess I would imagine the All Blacks, you know, in New Zealand, where you have, like, yeah, yeah. his grandfather, his great-grandfather. It's, like, legitimately not even, like, a, a sport anymore. It's, like, legitimately a lineage. It happens the same way in Uruguay as well. And, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's When, when you've seen what that makes and what that does, it's, wow. Like, like I said, I'm coming from a, a different culture. It just stood out to me, like, Oh my God. You know, I, I could give you, I don't want to, sorry, I just I have so many ideas in my mind. You know, I don't know if you know this, but a player died in 1954 semifinal. And I did not. Like, he played the extra time. It's incredible, like legitimately incredible. So he, Uruguay's playing Hungary. I, you know, the 54 Hungary, the Magyars, like one of the best teams in history. They're yes, yeah. rolling over the World Cup and go to the semifinal and uh, they're winning 2 0. And then Uruguay, you know, Thunder's got Thunderstorm. It's a very rainy game. With like 10 minutes to go, they just pull it out. They just start bombarding Hungary. And they they go to one. And a minute later, with like two minutes remaining, um, Hobert, who's Argentinian, he was not even Uruguayan. He was nationalized for playing many years. He scores a tying goal, has a heart attack, and a, re- reportedly basically died. There were massages, those pictures are massaging him. They're giving him salts, trying to wake him up. He wakes up, he's like, all right, on, on to extra time. Like apparently his heart was stopped for like 30 seconds. It's insane. 
and he just played the extra time. But he said the reason he literally died was because, and I don't know if you know, this is mostly known in South America, but um, from 1924 to 1954, Uruguay had this insane 30 year unbeaten streak at the World Cup, which it was like, you know, <laughs> speaking old wrestling, it was like Goldberg. If you remember the late 90s, it, had yes. like the streak. it was like the streak, can it be ended? So for him, it was like, oh my God, the streak's gonna end if I don't score this goal. And it's really an amazing goal because he actually like, rounds the keeper there's two defenders he actually has to pick his spot it's a very tough goal to score actually and when he scores he's losing his mind and he literally collapses because he said the stress and the emotion that he lived with for the last 15 years in this culture just was like i can't let this end i can't this is like a miracle on human levels he was saying i can't let this streak end unfortunately uh, hungry scores twice in extra time and you know ends up uh, winning the game for us unfortunately for us they had an amazing team uh, that you know, Hungarians, even now, funny enough, in 06, I went to Germany, met a Hungarian, he's a 54. Right? First thing he said, it's like, apparently everyone in Hungary knows about that game. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's amazing. And the guy, like, he wasn't even Uruguayan, he got it and he died, <laughs> which is one of the most incredible things I've ever heard. Like, in that is, I, that's a batshit story that I've yeah, never yeah. ever heard. Let's check it out. Hoberg, there's actually the photos full colored and they're massaging him, like, there's like people around, like, he's dead, he's dead. Like, it's amazing. World Cup semifinal. Oh, it's massive. So now, I, now look. With everything that you're saying and given the context and how you've told me everything. And prior to this interview, I told you my feelings on Luis Suarez. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but like knowing all of this now, when when Suarez in that game against Ghana, he gets that. Hand, it, it was the Ghana, right? He gets the handball. Yeah. It, it's the reverse hand of God. It's, oh, yeah. you know, it, it's the fist of the devil, if you will, if you want to call it that. Um and but in the post interview, everyone, you know, the, the press is just like, why would you do that? It's, it's it's such an important. And he's just like, I had to do it for the benefit of my country. And he is obviously at that point, one of the biggest players in the world. He's at the prime of his career, you could argue. And he's sacrificing himself so that Uruguay could go forward and march on. Yeah. Knowing that now, knowing what you've told me now. And thinking back to that story, and then, of course, the infamous Chiellini bite on the shoulder oh, yeah. uh, in 2014, um, that no referee saw, despite the fact that no. there's perfect teeth marks oh. and, and blood dripping from Giorgio's shoulder. I, I've, I've heard the interview by the, the Mexican referee from that match. It's very interesting. Um, he just said it was too fast. But it was, yeah, I think he was even looking at it. It was a throw-in. There's proof. There's proof. It was proof afterwards. Anyway. I, oh, no, there was. And the only thing you see is Killian just, like, he punches out of the face. He knocks it out. It, it was amazing, that moment. And then you have Gaston Ramirez trying to pull Killian's shirt up. He's like, <laughs> I think yes. it was like from Bologna at the time, Gaston Ramirez. It was already Sandoria, I think. But it was amazing. Like, the whole thing was just such a, a circus in the best in the best way <laughs> but knowing that chaos and i know you're not louis suarez obviously one you're a gentleman and a very kind person um but two but given the context and the history that you just told me is is are those things done with the mentality of oh we have to do this this is how it gets done for this team Absolutely. Wow. There's there's a little bit of um a, that is so fucked up, by the way. I just need no, to well, I can tell you more fucked up. So do you know about the 1990 story with Argentina, Brazil, and the bottle? Because this has been openly admitted. Like they no. were literally gonna they wanted to take away Argentina's silver medal for like 10 days. They were like, oh, it's been it's done, fine. They got away with it. So round of 16 Argentina plays Brazil, nil-nil. Brazil's dominating about 82nd minute water break. I forget where they played the match. I know it was in Italy, of course. And uh, Argentina shows up with a bottle and it's like, hey, anyone want to drink? Drugged, sleeping pills, Brazilian. 
for like four plays, like Barranco's like bumping into someone. They don't know what's going on. Next play, Maradona, like nice, great play. Dix to Canicia, through ball. Dix to Tafarel, scores. Argentina eliminates Brazil. Years later, they admitted like, we, we drugged the Brazilians. They were laughing on national television. And it was like, but they were like, there's no way Argentina was like, we're the, you know, the history. We couldn't. And lose to Brazil, they were not going to, they were just not going to have it. But I'm just saying, I hope, I hope Uruguay never goes that far. Right. But for me, the handball was like, I'm surprised the whole team didn't try to do that. And you know what? Actually, another player did for Chile. If you see the replay, Suarez is the one that gets it, but Jorge Fuchile is in front of him trying. He's reaching for the ball. And I was like, absolutely. There's no, you know, if you knew, because if you know the history and that it took Uruguay like 40 years to reach that point of a World Cup, oh my goodness, that's the least Suarez could have done. That was like nothing. Dude, it's, it's, it's basically, it's, it's all or nothing at this point, you know? And we talked about ride or die earlier, but like. That's the thing. Right. Like there has to be a, a way, you know what I mean? There's always something that the winners sometimes do that. But now yeah, that was, that was unexpected for sure. But well, actually it was expected for me to be honest, but anyways, right. sorry, but no, no, no. But my question now is, is that when that game is ends and they go into the locker room, obviously they win poor Ghana goes home. Okay. The team captain and the manager aren't looking at Suarez going, you idiot. We have a much more important game next round and you're not in it. And now that you're this goal scoring machine, you you can't participate. So like the gift is, is that thanks for your, you know, your cheating basically to get us the victory, but there's a sacrifice here and you're not playing in it and we could potentially lose. No, it it was seen as like an absolute necessary resort. You know, I mean, I've I've seen the highlight a million times and I always think maybe Suarez could have put his head to the right a little bit. But if you see how it's happening, it was just absolute chaos, like 100,000 fans in Soccer City, right, in in Johannesburg. And literally, if you see that play, like Suarez already like blocked it with his leg. It was going in. There was no goal. Musleta was already like, he was off missing a punch. So the Guardians were getting free headers and literally it was going bullet, like in. There was no way. And it wasn't even a light header. So I, I really think Suarez at that moment, he didn't even think it was like do or die. Legitimately, it goes in now. It's, it was 120th minute. It's over. Yeah. There was no way, you know, maybe wow. if, you know, it was going in his head and he went like this, but it was literally kind of like one of those, you like, he, he really just gets it. He doesn't even think, but there's no way, even if it wasn't, even if it was like 90th minute, no, nah, they wouldn't have said anything because they know, they just know what it meant. Um, they saw it as a, as a sacrifice, like an actual loving. That was actually Eduardo Gali Galeano. I don't, I don't know if you know the author. He wrote a football in the sun and shadow. shadow. Yeah, yeah. He was interviewed afterwards. And he basically said it was like, it was an act. He actually said, like, I'm actually verbatim. He said it was an act of love, not an act of like, it was literally like, I will, you know, I will miss my World Cup, but I'm not letting this end like this. And that's what it was. Wow. And it's funny because, you know, people say cheating, but again, I think it's subjective. That match, and I'm doing a, I'm doing a documentary on that. I'm trying to make it as fair as I can, but that match has so, <laughs> if you watch, just to be honest, when national anthems are playing, Joseph Blatter standing with like nine <laughs> African, <laughs> African delegates, basically arm in arm. I'm like, huh. So I see, uh, you know, you're kind of hoping for a Korea 2002 thing here, and eh? you really want them to go through. So the last play of the game before the hand of ball, Suarez, Dominic Adia does, and I'm not even saying, it's not even, it's like not even a foul or not even a, it's a blatant dive three meters from a player. He literally runs and drops on the floor three meters from Fuchile. The footage is everywhere. Funny enough, if you see the World Cup footage, they cut it right there in the replay. It's like legitimate cheating, robbery, robbery. And in that play confirmed, there's two offsides. 
sides in the play. So he never should have counted anyways. Like we're talking a meter offside. It was men's side. I forgot the other one. When he goes back, he was already offside when he heads it again. So I'm just saying like, when, when, you know, in terms of cheating, I find it is subjective. And if you look at the whole thing, it was like, well, you know, like how did that free kick come about? It's also like, it goes back to cultural differences though for South America especially south south southern south america that is that's that's in the dna whereas the other parts of the world will look at it as like dude that's cheating that's that's not that that's something that you clutch your pearls and say i don't want my kids seeing that because you're cheating but then there's a part of the world that's saying no this is this is hero this is being heroic and putting your putting the team above you in South America, it was like that. There was not one. It was like the most heroic moment, like neutrally celebrated in easily South America's history. I can easily say this. Neutral, like by neutrally, I mean outside of Argentina and Brazil. And I can say, to be honest, because there's videos in Colombia losing their minds, like thousands watching that match. And that Suarez had ball was like, it got a chuckle, but that's it. It was like completely, absolutely like the, you know. But like I said, it's like, you know, I guess the only clutch pearls thing um, that I, I would do is, is just the fact that, you know, they don't mention the other cheating. So Ghana, you know, by the way, Ghana, like, oh my goodness, that match. I mean, I know they played hard and everything. They broke a player's leg, like pretty much. Cleats up into Nicolas Lodeiro. Played with a broken, he played with a broken leg for like half an hour. It's insane. Knowingly, he didn't tell anyone. Um, and, the, you know, the Dominic idea dive. And if you see the footage, it's not even like, oh, and he's running. No, no, the guy's here. He just go, looks around, falls on the ground. Linesman's in front of him and goes free kick. It's like, like pretty much like ladder. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Free, yeah, free kick. Free kick. It was that bad. It was like, and then you find out about years later, you know, FIFA's uh, allegations. So it's like, you know, there's a few connections to be made, I think. But uh, like I said, it's like for the media to mention one, like, oh my God. Right. Like, you have to do the other. That's what about the systemic cheating that was happening for about 120 minutes? Well, not 120 minutes, but at least that play is sh- like, it's like, no, 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 linesman. No, no, there's no way you didn't see that. He just dropped on the ground. This is like, this was bad. And the fact that FIFA cuts the, the replay over and over immediately to not show that is like, forget it. Because if I'm not mistaken, at that point in the 2010 World Cup, Ghana's the last African nation left in the Africa's first and only at this point. Oh, yeah. oh. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, they were. So it was huge. It was like Africa versus Uruguay, basically. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. No, the narrative of that match is kind of amazing. Like, it very is. It's really like, historic in a lot of ways, I find, because it's like an old football country versus a new one. Yeah. There's so much going on. And, yeah, like, you know, the whole ending with Suarez, I think it's almost Shakespearean. Like, it's legitimately a masterpiece. We're going, like, one player is about to become all-time legend all-time villain and it swaps in a millisecond right. it's like i've never seen that even in mythology like it ever happened so that i think that's it just blew everyone's mind like what am i watching here so that's the whole right now? oh that's such the beauty of the world cup and the magic of it yeah. and and look you can charge the two thousand dollars a ticket that they'll probably charge in six years when it comes to north america but or four years rather four years um when it comes to north america but you you can't put a price on moments like that. I mean, because well, you'll talk about it forever. Now, we touched on it earlier. My question to you now is, is that they're Argentina, Uruguay are looking to co-host 2030. There's potential about that. How do you feel about this? And will this benefit the good of both nations? Or is it a situation like, kind of like this North American thing that they're going to do in 2026, where... 95% of it is played in the US and yeah. then cool we'll give two game we'll give two stadiums in Canada and two maybe three in Mexico like that it it seems so disjointed to me 
just call it the North, just call it the American World Cup. Like, because yeah. it, it's, it's, it should be more evenly split, in my opinion. And I'm afraid that that's what's going to happen going forward is, is that it's multiple countries co hosting, but it's really just one. It might, you know, you're, I, yeah, no, when the stadiums were named, I think I, I said out loud, I was like, so it's basically USA 2026 featuring Canada and Mexico, but well, it is the way it is. But, you know, in a sense, yeah, because it's, it's not just Argentina and Uruguay, you have Chile and Paraguay as well, which is very interesting. Oh, so it's a four. Yeah, very. I know. I was like, okay. And they, they officially, like, they, you know, approved the bid about a week ago. So this is like, it's done. It's happening. So how do I feel? Well, you know, there's a little bit of romanticism. I, I am pragmatic, I think, obviously. They, they, apparently England, China, maybe Spain and Portugal are front runners as well. I just think a World Cup in any of those countries would be uh, beautiful. Even China would be beautiful. Mm-hmm. I just think the fact that it's 2030 and I can understand England wanting to claim the Century World Cup. In my opinion, I w- wish they could do it like the last Euro, which was this massive world celebration where multiple countries have the groups, but the final has to be in the Cincinnatio. Like, it is literally the birthplace of the World Cup. And I know for a fact that I know it's there's a there was you know a lot of controversy in 1930. Um, there was a lot, of, even in England, they couldn't believe there's there's a lot of feuding between the uh, English FA and the and FIFA at the time, but they they saw it as like an affront, like you were dare you you're giving the first world cup to not us to give it to uruguay and yeah it's just the fact that that is the stadium so it's it's almost as if i don't even mind where it is as long as they get the final and maybe one group that'd be nice one group but the final has to be there and in my opinion i mean i'm just saying it just seems common sense at this point so i don't don't even mind you're right it'll be 100 years since the first world cup which was held in europe yeah you're right oh wow that's the thing so that in a way i think their only uh argument with fifa in a sense with the bidding would be uh yeah the emotional aspect right it's like well guys you know it's the 100th world cup are you not going to have it where it all started right so i mean we'll see how far that uh emotional uh you know pulling up the strings does um but uh you know, we'll see. We'll see. It might. It might actually work. I know South America is pu- pulling their weight. Like they're putting all of their weight. They're they're even kind of contacting getting, getting votes from Africa and all this stuff. So they are putting their all their weight into this. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. I do think obviously the favorites would be England or Spain, Portugal, or you know, obviously they just have the infrastructure. They have everything <laughs> you need. Incredible stadiums. Everything. I mean, honestly. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I just um, honestly, I would love it to be in Italy again. I think Italy. What thirty four was the no no sorry nineteen ninety. Oh, nineteen ninety. Yeah, nineteen ninety. Maybe it was slips for me sometimes, 1990. Oh, amazing. man, that, no, that's but, my benchmark, man. That's my yeah. benchmark. Uh, <laughs> no, 90 is amazing. I love yeah. my, my first one was 94, but 90 I have some. But I watched, like, I own all of Uruguay's games from 1990, by the way, all of them, Belgium, Italy even. I watched the whole Italy game, um, you know. So, yeah, I've watched all the games in 90. I love that one. That's great. But anyways, yeah, no, I, I do hope. Um, I, I wouldn't mind. Personally, for me, if you ask me, I don't mind the rest of the country's having all the matches just as long as Uruguay gets a group and just plays at home and b- gets the final. That's it. Even if you just give them the final, I'm great. I'm great. Okay. That would just mean so much in terms of like a, a statement, like bam, there you go. Right. So that's my hope. Who knows? Fingers crossed. No, that that's true. That would, it would be such a special moment. And if FIFA really wants to tout their history, I mean, a return on a centennial would be, why, why not? How could you not? You you might ever not ever get this opportunity again. So that's yeah, that's that's the selling point. Now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City, but you can get it anywhere in the world from ModCup.com. Mod Cup, drink modern coffee. Use code Mundial for ten percent off your first order. This 
portion is three rapid fire questions that generally apply to club soccer, but, but I've done this with national team fans. So this works. It'll still work. Uh, Question number one, if you could bring back one retired player to Uruguay alive or dead, who would it be and why? Okay. Only one. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I have to go with Pedro Rocha. He is considered a, a, I mean, a lot of people who've spoken about him, including Pele actually called him one of the five best players he's ever seen. And he said this like in the two thousands, Pedro Rocha played for Uruguay in the 1960s and seventies. He won uh, with with Peñarol and he played for Sao Paulo and he won like everything but they just said he was an incredible midfielder in fact in almost any match report even against England in 66 all the reports like oh you was pretty average but this one guy wrote <laughs> my goodness so they and I, I saw the game against Real Madrid and he was incredible in 66 and in, in Santiago Bernabeu and yeah I just always heard that he was just such a magnificent like a tall elegant Sort of like if you could imagine um, maybe more of a, a, a Bentancourt or actually, you know what, maybe a mixture between Bentancourt and Valverde, actually, because he was just very physical and fast. And I don't know, a lot of people in 1970, he was like the Luis Suarez. He was like the superstar one player that was supposed to carry Uruguay to the World Cup. And he gets injured in the first game against Israel. And they still made the semis without him, which is pretty insane. Wow. But yeah, I always heard that Rocha was just phenomenal. He, he scored the winning goal, like incredible, like 20 meter shot against Argentina in 1967 Copa America final. So yeah, he's. Uh, I've seen footage of him, and even Sao Paulo fans when they talk about him as one of the greatest players to ever play in Brazil. So he he always really stood out to me as uh, I don't know, kind of like a a player that that could survive in the modern game. He just had that physique that you notice in that sense. But there's there's so many. I mean, you know, I I would love to bring Abdulia Varela back. I mean, just the stuff I've read about him, the stuff he said he's done, and you know, you, you know, he retired from the World Cup undefeated. He never played in the semifinal. He um he he. Oh, wow. he got, uh, hamstring pull yeah celebrating a goal against england in the quarterfinal he scores and he gets injured never plays for uruguay again he retired with an insane record it was like a world cup record of like like eight wins one draw and the world cup and a semi-final it's incredible and they said it was all here mentally like what a beast so but i mean my player for now would be rocha just because i think he just seemed like such an exquisite player but uh you know, if I, if I were to get a, a bonus wish here, I would uh, I would say Obdulia Just from the things I've heard, this guy seemed like, wow, what a leader. Like, what a captain. Wow. So, it seemed amazing to bring him back. That's the thing. Okay. Right. Now, this generally applies to the transfer market, this question, but we can, we can work with it. If Uruguay could call up one player from anywhere in the world, let's just say you can nationalize anybody, as, as we talk about with Argentina doing it, and Italy is notorious for doing it, um, England as well. You know, the guys can have dual nationalities, um, play for one club. So if Uruguay could play, could sign one player, modern, current player, who would it be and why? I think I have a person. I think I have Rodrigo de Paul from Atlético Madrid. Nice. I, love I, I think he's great. I think you he's know? so underrated. I think he's going to go back to Italy too. But like he's, really? so, yeah. I don't. I don't know why he hasn't taken off the way he has Atlético Madrid because I thought he would be perfect for Simeone. I watched all the games. I thought he was actually, he was good throughout the whole season. You know, I don't know. Maybe just the team didn't, um, you know, fulfill all the expectations. They nearly beat, I mean, they they fought till the end against Manchester City. 
the thing is, you know, I got to see the Paul from Luis Suarez's perspective, and he is just such a great teammate. He just seems like such a very passionate. And a lot of Uruguayan fans I speak to, they they mention him as as saying like, yeah, he almost seems Uruguayan by the way he plays. Like he just seems like a perfect number five. I know, you know, there's a lot of fans, Lucas Torreira, you know, and a lot of those guys, but this Matias Vecino, we used to play for Inter Milan. But um, yeah, Rodrigo Paul just seems like he has that like. Like if he was Uruguayan, you would not see him out of place. Well, for example, James. Oh my goodness, James! I don't think he would have survived three games on Uruguay. They would have, because the, the Uruguayan player, even when he's a playmaker, he's expected to come back and tackle with his head, basically. Yeah, that, that's the thing, and that's the difference. I find that is a big difference. Which, by the way, my my friends can recognize the like, oh, like we can't believe Cavani's like playing like a defender now. But the thing is, yeah, Rodrigo de Paul, he would not be out of place. I think he'd be a wonderful addition, and I just love his grit. I don't know, I just, you know, there's something about that type of player that I think Uruguayans really love you know in 06 i mean by the way i went to the world cup in 06 whoa fell in love with italy immediately they became my team that's one of my favorite teams of all time we went to a pub we watched ghana italy with my dad and i and immediately just seeing gattuso i mean oh that team that midfield with you know pirlo it's an incredible i mean Totti was a sufferer most of the tournament you know because australia scored an injury time but i followed italy closely that whole tournament and i just fell in love with gattuso as just this character this do you remember? I mean, sorry, I don't. I have so many memories of football that are just bringing up and welling up inside me. There's a moment in the semifinal, which is, by the way, one of my top five matches ever. Oh, I agree. Masterpiece. Every there was like a moment, like a chance every like minute. Incredible drama. But the moment we remember when Balak, he's like arguing with the ref because got doing something, and then got goes behind him and he pulls his hair down. Do you remember that? And Balak's like, "Why did you see that?" And got walks away like nothing happened. I'm like. We're howling like this guy's amazing. The you bring up Celtic and- early. You, I'm sorry, you brought up Rangers earlier. Uh, Celtic Rangers earlier. Gattuso used to play for Rangers early in his career. There's a famous photo of him choking out his old coach. Oh, do it. Was it uh, Walter Smith? Yeah, hand on the throat, just squeezing, just being like, you know, but that's just a greeting for him. Right. It was a beautiful moment. Um, and by beautiful, I mean absolutely hilarious. Uh, <laughs> in Andrea Pirlo's book, where he talks about how in the 2006 World Cup, uh, he was roommates with Gattuso. So you have complete polar opposite guys, but they're best friends. And Gattuso is obviously he's as short tempered on the field as he is off the field as a player. Now he's kind of tapered off a bit. <laughs> There's a moment in the book where Pirlo would talk about how he loved to joke around and screw around with him just to get a rise out of him. So there were times where uh, they'd be at dinner having, you know, family style uh, team dinners and people would like take food off his plate or make fun of him because he's eating too much. He would actually take his fork and stab his teammates in the knee and just be like, say it again, say it again. There are other moments where they, Pirlo loved playing PlayStation. And he talked about how he's like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with De Rossi tonight and play PlayStation. Um, I'll, you know, I'll leave a little light on for me. When in the meantime, he'd be hiding in the closet with De Rossi and Gattuso would be, you know, getting out of the shower, laying in bed, thinking he's got the whole room for himself. And out would they would pop and then just like scream, you know, and scare him. And he chased them around the room. He almost he tackled De Rossi once to the ground and like would just start like pummeling them and that's what he did it's just like dude we got to wake up tomorrow and play a game like we can't yeah, the world cup finals tomorrow basically and, and you're, yeah, you're we're doing this someone's leg yeah so that's you know and got to, and there are not many players that are like him anymore 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because now everyone's concerned about, and rightfully so, image and all this stuff. And you know, if my face gets mangled, I could lose a contract yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, or an endorsement. But Gattuso, to me, I think would have fit into what everything that you described about Uruguay. He is the most Uruguayan Italian ever because oh, yeah. he would have fit it because he would have put if it meant taking a boot to the face and having your jaw fly off your face and, you know, cracking every bone in your body just so that your team could win. That was that guy. And there's no player. I don't see any players like that anymore. Very rare. Absolutely. Very, very rare. Which makes me appreciate that too. So, so much more, especially like the privilege I even had to witness him. And it's like absolute peak, you know, remember the semifinal when they beat Germany, he like manhandles Leapy. I think he gets, he's like in his face, grabbed by the throat. Leapy's like laughing. He's like, oh, okay. Cause you know, it's just, oh, what a player. And you do not see that much. I mean, you know, Uruguayans are, they hope they can find another player like that. I think at the last World Cup, I remember Nathan Nandez, who uh, played for Gaigari until recently. I don't know if he's going to stay there because, you know, they got relegated. Right. Um, he was uh, he was doing these tackles with his head. So, like, he would, like, lose possession and it'd be crawling on the ground and trying to, like, get the ball. That's so dangerous. You can, like, break your neck if the guy yeah. drew or whatever. And the press inside, in Europe, they're, like, losing their minds. In Argentina, they're like, oh, yeah. You know, because in Europe, they love that. They love that completely. So, but the thing is, I do recognize it's extremely dangerous and i think i don't like youth players doing that to prove how you know how tough they can be for the uruguay soccer culture but um that's probably the closest thing i've seen in terms of a player not really you know uh you know keeping his uh you know his health uh, as a priority and that's why yeah absolutely got to so in that sense and that's why you know if i were to say a, a play from another country the paul but if you were to say someone and it would be without a shadow of a doubt got to so if you said a retired player from all of history, mm. I think I go got do so. Wow. Absolutely. Ew, oh. my it's just because that player, man, that is, that is the spirit, you know, that is, Oh, it, it picks up the players more than any other player. Uh, even the most talented players, you know, they would prefer that way more without a shadow of a doubt. I would say that was the thing. Like he, he knew he wasn't the most talented guy in the room or on the field rather. And, but he also realized I'm the toughest and for club and country, you know, in a Milan midfield of him, Birlo, Clarence Seedorf, who I think is 100% the most underrated Dutchman in history. Um, and Massimo Ambrosini, who was technical, not very fast, but could see things not to the point of Pirlo, but to the point that, like, he could be a talisman, a backup talisman. Right, right. And then here's Gattuso, who is stocky, not fast, not going to score goals, not going to get assists, but he's going to barrel through everybody or he's going to make sure that no one barrels through his defense. It's really, it's unbelievable. And to reciprocate that. So to do that for Milan and then to do that for the national team on the, basically to the 50th power. Yeah. is just, it's, it's insane. It's insane. And I, uh, The nostalgia of this game is it always makes me look at things with rose colored glasses, but it also makes me feel like, yeah, I'm the old man screaming into the void. But I know that there's I say that there's not a player like that now, but I know there will be down the line. Which game are you talking specifically about the whole campaign or the semifinal against Germany? I'm just talking in general. general. Right. Okay. The whole campaign, everything they did. Yeah. Yeah, Which is, you know, 
pretty much a perfect campaign. I thought it was, yeah, it's like, you know, except for, except for the Australia, that game was a bit of a scare. I saw it with Australians actually uh, in, in a fan fest in uh, Austria. And it was amazing. Wow. Like that match, when that penalty, when Goroso just kind of falls over, you know, Lucas Neal, and is like, oh, <laughs> when they call that, <laughs> it was like, okay. You know, Italy was about to go to extra time with uh, one man less because they got a red card with uh, right. Matarazzi, right? I mean, if, if I'm not mistaken. But I remember, I remember he did kind of slide this clean up. Like, but yeah, no, no, that... um. I don't know. That team is just, I don't know. It has so much of classic football in so many ways, like the classic playmaker. You have the, the legend, Totti. You have, uh, and not only that, but you have all these characters like Luca Doni, who is hilarious, right? I know he scores against Ukraine for the first time in the tournament, but still, he, you know, he's integral in the team. Buffon. I mean, the, the personalities on it. Matera, my goodness, Materazzi by himself. So you have players, it seems, that can actually turn games around. And that's what I love about those kinds of players. Yes. You know, it, it's very simple. I think we have a talented team and then you go one nil down and then you see the players disappear, but then those guys show up and they will pick the players up. And it's like, no, 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 it is not over. Those are the ones that I find make the difference in history. And that's why, you know, I mean, love them or hate them. I think people hate them when they're not on your team. Gattuso, yeah. Materazzi, for example. 100%. Uh, that's a great on, way to look at on it. On your team, my God. If I could have a Uruguayan player score a goal in a World Cup final. And do you remember what Materazzi does? He does the like the, the little kind of like like sign to the fans because we're booing him. I mean, just saying the the just the courage and the balls of these guys. I mean, wow, wow, wow. Like, what a generation of players. So anyways, yeah. So, uh, you know, in terms of uh, explaining what I'm looking for, that, uh, yeah, that is, wow. the, yeah. for me, oh, give me those players every every day <laughs> now my final question to you is what has been your favorite moment as a fan oh that's a big one oh, you know what i can probably i can say for these like, it, it would be the ghana match it was just like that game was a transformative mm-hmm. tie ghana and england in 2014 because mm-hmm. the england match felt like a it was just such a very personal story what happened with suarez there was a lot of tension with english media he gets injured he's expected to come back in six weeks comes back in three and a half he's like at 40 percent begs to play against england scores twice you know it's just you could not write that and the emotion of that especially because it was a do or die match right. and and the history too you have these two world champions and none of the ones to lose and so that was huge that was like a statement game like like historic for us it was very big but the ghana game was i mean you know that last 15 20 minutes is it just there's so many twists and turns and the sheer emotion. What it did was it reminded me of the Maracanazo. And I think Uruguay loves this as well. Whenever there's a, an away fixture and it's like 100,000 fans against little old Uruguay, that is like they live for that. The, the players, the children, the whole community, the country, they grew up with that mythology as like the peak mythology. So seeing Soccer City, like 105,000, it's all Ghana, you know, and they're just celebrating like as if it's already like, yeah, they're already in the semis. And, you know, they were so much bigger and faster. And the, the way that Uruguay just went at it that game, you know, there was a, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the term Garra Charrua, which is, you know, that grit and, and fighting wow. spirit. I remember one of the announcers once, and I think it was from Peru. I forgot. He literally said in the second half, like, now the Garra Charrua is in a test of fire. Like, let's see if it's for real. And well, anyways, they survived. <laughs> that's 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 the that's the the moral of the story. But yeah, no, just the courage that even in the shootout, it's incredible. Like the fact that they and the, you know the last penalty to chip it, like that was. I mean, for me, that was like there was no other way that could have ended. Like you, for me, because for me, Uruguay is like um, it's kind of like a inconsistent. There's no logic with it. It's sort of this like weird enigma in football hit in sports history even. So I'm like, in my opinion, to it had to end in the most enigmatic way, <laughs> which, which is, is that? higher 
chip a player who's like barely played in the world cup and he's just like a, a character you know, this would be like luca so like a very just funny character who's a good yeah. player but he wasn't world class by any means and he comes in and takes the ballsiest penalty i've ever seen like what well, well, i do think you know for zidane in 06 in the final that's insane to do in the final but like i know it's it could have been like 50 years until you're going to be in the semifinal again right so this moment for him to do that is like i can't i can't so yeah it's just there's just so much about it that was um, unconventional. And that's why I love that match to death. So it was kind of like about I got asked so times 10 because, you know, everything, the red car, Suarez celebrating, Muslera kissing the post when I hit the crossbar. There's just so many memories and things happening, twists and turns. And it's a masterpiece in my opinion. So that is definitely the emotion I felt in that game. No, I don't, I don't think I'll ever experience that ever again. So the only thing that was close was 14, but yeah, no, Ghana 2010 is buried in my mind and my, my soul <laughs> forever <laughs> absolutely i love it, it. alvaro this has been such an educational and inspiring and quite frankly batshit uh <laughs> episode i love it and i love it because okay. it, it's from what we've talked about it's as uruguayan as it should be so thank you for taking me there well, I'm very glad you enjoyed it. And you know, thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time. Honestly, I can't even believe the time. It flew by. I could talk football, literally, man. It's like you go, you go to a pub with me, just you know, and I I would talk 1930s for I just love this stuff. I I talk about Italy, I love Italy. Italian football is like oh, it's like it's like legit my second favorite team after Uruguay for for real. Love I I, I have always associated to be honest, when I saw Uruguay Italy win it in 06, my first thought to my dad was I wish Uruguay played like this team represented what I felt. So I love that. 06 seems so much so yeah in general sal thank you so so much for inviting me i had a wonderful wonderful time just talking about this and yeah no, um look forward to if you know another time we, we were to meet again to talk again sometime in the future absolutely absolutely my friend follow us on twitter at curva mundial pod and subscribe to us on spotify and apple podcasts thanks for listening